Yeah, so we're in 1 Samuel 8. I'm going to read from verse 6 through to verse 22. Remember last week, um, the elders have come to Samuel and said, we want a king. And as we break in at verse 6, it says, but the thing, that is the request for a king, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say, for, uh, say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifties. Will set some to plough his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Well, friends, as we saw last week in the opening verses, Samuel is old. He has appointed his sons as judges. That's a total disaster. And the elders of Israel come to Samuel and ask for a king. Now, tonight I just want to give a little of the background and set the, the chapter in a wider context. And that will... Not only be helpful, but it will also be important. First Samuel, you know, obviously apart from the wonderful little book of Ruth in between Judges and Samuel. Uh, First Samuel actually moves from the last verse of the book of Judges uh, to the first verse of First Samuel. Uh, now you say, Billy, what's the grounds for saying that? Well, it, it's based on that little refrain which runs through the last chapters of the book of Judges. 
Uh, you'll be familiar with the refrain, Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1 begins, In those days, there was no king of Israel. As does chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. You go to the uh, 21st chapter, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So they had a system whereby God directly appointed a judge, and that judge ruled. And as many of you know, when you read the book of Judges, you know, it would go along fairly well for a while, and then um, the whole thing would hit the buffers, and the cycle would start all over again. And so the notion that's in the mind of these elders, given the antics of Samuel's two sons and their shenanigans, Uh, It's an understandable notion. Why don't we put in place something that will be far more beneficial, maybe something that will be far more stable? And the idea was that a dynastic monarchy would then solve the problem. It would be secure, it would be stable, It would provide a solid uh, foundation in which uh, they as a nation could go forward. And so Samuel verse 6, we're told, was displeased when they said, give us a king to judge us. But we should note it it wasn't wrong for them to ask for a king. It wasn't wrong for Israel to have a king. In fact, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had anticipated Uh, such a day. If you turn back to the book of Deuteronomy for a moment, Deuteronomy 17, uh, you'll find Moses speaking to the people. So in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 15, Moses says, God says through Moses, when you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you, And possess it and dwell in it. And say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So you see there in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, Moses, as I say, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has already anticipated this day. And as you read on, you can do it for homework later, from... uh, Verse 15 in Deuteronomy 17, you find that God prescribes the exact nature and way in which the kingly rule would be put in place. Now, there are a couple of moments in the book of Judges where it totters on the brink of establishing a monarchy. Can you think of any of them? That's right. Gideon. You know, Gideon, after his success with Midian, the men of Israel come to Gideon, Judges 8, verses 22, 23. They come to Gideon and they say, you rule, you rule over us. You know, both you, your son, and your grandson also. For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Well, that's not how the the judges worked. 
because you know, the judges weren't heredity. Uh, and so what they are actually saying, they're saying, Gideon, become the king, because you saved us from the hand of Midian. Wrong. He was involved in the great victory as a result of God's great intervention. And you see, friends, how quickly people go to a man. You see how quickly people go to flesh and blood. They go to a leader. What does the psalm say? Put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in chariots. Put not your trust in men. Trust in God. And what's Gideon's response? He says to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. In other words, it's the Lord who is king. He, he is the king. You know, the fact says Gideon that I happen to be used in the way that I was used. It's just basically a testimony to God's grace and goodness. But don't forget, lads, he is the king. And so we're not going to do this. And tragically, as you know, if you've read the story of uh, the book of Judges and the story of Gideon, uh, he had a number of wives, had a son by one of his concubines, and Abimelech, um, he said, well, I'm, I'm going to do what my father said he wasn't going to do, so I'll be king. And that's what, that's what happened, and you discover that that also ends in absolute disaster. Thankfully, it's short-lived. And so we, we go, if we go back to for uh, Samuel 8, we go, you know, in the verses 6 and 9, and we have Samuel's reaction and God's response. So the elders come and said, you know, give us a cane. Verse 6, we've already read, the thing displeased Samuel. And understandably so. I mean, I'm sure there's a personal element here. Like the guy's flesh and blood. He has been a judge to the people. He, he's done his best. In chapter 7, Samuel's leadership is marked as outstanding. And now, after all these years have advanced and he's become old, they've decided it's time for change. You know, we'll dispense with him. And it displeased Samuel. And that's his reaction. But notice that he has a, a counteraction, doesn't he? He prays. So he just didn't, you know, go like Jack Horner and sit in the corner and huff. Uh, he, he prayed. And there's a little challenge there, isn't there? Remember when Nehemiah heard the news that had come out of uh, Jerusalem concerning the destruction and the chaos that was there? It says of Nehemiah that he sat down and he wept and he mourned. But then it says, he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, his reaction was to weep, to mourn. But on the flip side, his counteraction was to pray. It was the same with Samuel's mum, wasn't it? She was afflicted. She mourned. 
But her counteraction was to pray. Now, beloved, here's the challenge. I'm good at mourning. I'm not all that good at praying. And here's the challenge. When something displeases me, what's my reaction? To moan. What should the counteraction be? You know, do you have the same tendency? You know, when you're displeased by something, do you just want to tell everybody how displeased you are? Instead of doing what Samuel does here, Hannah does, instead of doing what Nehemiah does, you know, praying. You know, we often sing, you know, take everything to God in prayer. But we often don't. And it's a challenge, isn't it? Samuel says, Lord, you're going to have to do something about this, or things are going to get really out of hand. It's interesting, isn't it, whether... It's Abraham, whether it's Moses, whether it's a Samuel or whether it's a Peter in the New Testament. How often we try to tell God, who rules everything, who's sovereign over all things, how he ought to be doing his job. And so the reaction of Samuel is followed by the response of the Lord, verses 7 through 9. Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. That I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day. Which, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice, however... You shall solemnly warn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Would you like to have been around when this happened? Just being a fly on the wall or on the tent or wherever he was, was at the time? Because I wonder if, you know, Samuel must have been absolutely crushed by this. He could never have anticipated that this would have been the response of God because say, Samuel was displeased. Understandably so, he had fulfilled the role of a judge. He had done so faithfully. He knew the history of the people. And now he goes to God, unburdening his burden, tells God how he's feeling. Really miffed about this. And God says, No, that's not what I want you to do, Samuel. I want you to go ahead and give them a king. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as their king. They've done this from the very beginning. You know, notice what it says there in the text in verse eight since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Well, of course, the history of the people confirms that, doesn't it? Moses goes up the mountain. He's up there for a wee while, and then the people say, you know, this guy's gone. You know, we don't see him. And who knows where he is? And what about God? 
we don't know if he's even speaking to us anymore. Uh, we don't know what he's doing. So Aaron, come here. Why don't we have something a little bit more exciting? You know, let's make a God that we can see. Something tangible. You know, people tell us all the time, don't they? If I could only see God, you know, it would be different. If I could only see, I would believe. It's not true, is it? You know, let's have a God that we can see. They do have gods that they can see. They've got gods of their own fashion that they can see. You know, be it football, music, shopping or whatever. You know, they've got their own gods that they fashion. Doesn't do them any good. Still empty. Same with these people who were asking for a God that they could see. And, the, and their, uh, their saying didn't make them believe. You can't trust idols. So when Moses comes down from the mountain, they're all dancing around the golden calf. The judges had been put in place. To exercise leadership under the priority and absolute authority of God the Lord as king. They had a king in God. But you will notice in verse 9, God says to them, make sure that you solemnly forewarn them. And show them the behavior of the king who will rule over them, reign over them. Now, that word behavior is Close to the Hebrew word for justice. And so what God's essentially saying is, and there's something of an an, an irony in this. Let them have their king. And warn them about the kind of justice that they can expect. They want a king like all the other nations have a king. Some will make sure that you let them know that there will be a price to pay. Now, as you read on into this story, particularly when you get to chapter 12, you discover that God does not forsake his people, even though that they are seeking to reject him. And again, we can just pause for a second. Isn't it wonderful that the God who saves is the God who keeps us. And we quote it on a frequent basis. But it's such an encouraging verse. Philippians 1 verse 6. It, it is so encouraging to know that the God who began a good work in us. Will bring it to completion. In the day of Jesus Christ. So although we are. By nature rebellious, though we often go our own way and wander off and, you know, come up with our own stupid ideas and end up living with the implications of that. God, because he is God and God, because of the God that he is, is the God who actually restores the years that the locusts have eaten as the prophet Joel says and that's about to be discovered by these people also now before we go to that let's just draw this to a close and then go to prayer by taking stock of this solemn warning and the solemn warning is very clear it's in verses 10 through 18 God says be careful what you're asking for 
What were they asking for? Well, we have the answer to that in the text. You know, you don't have to scratch your head wondering about it. God says to Samuel, they're saying they don't want me as a king. They don't want to be Israel. They don't want to be a holy people. They don't want to be a distinctive nation. They don't want to be a royal priesthood. That's what they're saying no to. They don't want it. So it's sort of back to where we started when we introduced this last week, Romans chapter 12. What they're saying is we'd like to be the kind of people that can be absorbed into the culture around us. We would like to be like everybody else. We would like to have the kind of leadership that's free of God's perfect rule. And this idea that God's rule is restrictive, it's inhibiting. Not seeing God's rule as something that's liberating. That's one of the the dangers of sin, isn't it, in the fallen nature? That we think God restricts and God liberates. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you over to, to what you want. I'll give it to you. And with the experience of getting what you want, you will actually find you're bringing yourselves under judgment. So you see the Lord's willingness to grant them a cane was an act of judgment on his part for their foolish, faithless request. God permits it, but he's not really blessing it. And that's what we find running right through, you know, the history of Israel. Rebellion. And God giving them over to their desires. Permitting it, but not so much blessing it. It's the history of our fallen world. We don't want God to rule over us. We'll do it our own way. We don't want God's rules. Uh, We've got our own desires. Um, And God says, uh, yeah, give them it. Let them have it. But not so much blessing them in it. Now, it's alarming, isn't it? Because individually, we can be like many Israels. As you reflect on your Christian experience, as you reflect on your Christian life, the times in life you wanted something dreadfully. And God chose not to give it to you. And looking back, you can say that was a blessing. And there were other times when you wanted something and what you were really saying was, I don't really want to live under your uh, rule, living God. I want to be free. I want to make my own choices. I want to make my own call. I want to be my own person. I want to make my own decisions about who I am, what I do, etc., etc. God says, okay. You can have it. Now here's the paradox, and this is where the apparent contradiction comes in. About, you know, God gives him over, but not to the extent that he actually, you know, blesses that with a confirmation, if you know what I mean. is not that he's condoning this. Because in seeking to be free, to be free from God, a perfect, loving, wise, generous God, 
we end up living with the implications of that decision, as I say. We end up living with the consequences of that decision, and it wasn't good. And yet, I say, here's the paradox. Romans 8, 28. God used it in a way that ultimately brought about blessing for us. God used it to, to bring about something better in our lives. To grow us in our faith. And so yes, when the people reject God, they want this, this, this king, we want the king of our own making. God says, okay, there's consequences. And yet what comes through it is the king of kings. What comes through it is the Lord Jesus Christ. What comes through it is our redemption. And that's the wonder of the way God works, isn't it? You know, he overrules all of our mistakes. He overrules all the mess that we make. And yeah, he doesn't condone our sin. But yet he brings, and and his goodness, he brings He brings us through it, out the other end, and we're all the better for it. 